morning, uh, beginning with the very first verse of Zephaniah, and we will read the entire uh, portion of this chapter, and then uh, ultimately focus on verse 12. It says, The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the housetops to the host of the heaven. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Well, inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at the time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of earth. Let's pray. Father God, this morning with uh, such a great privilege to open your word, Lord, may you uh, allow us to read Lord, and to see with spiritual eyes the truth of our King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior Jesus Christ. For indeed, today we may proclaim that he is risen and he is ascended. God, that he is even now making intercession. Or may we examine under the scrutiny of the gospel lens your power and your reign and your authority. God, your grace and your mercy, your goodness. Lord, all of the attributes and characteristics that define the only one true God of heaven. Or would you allow us even today to worship in spirit and in truth and that uh, we would do so and it would be found pleasing before your sight. Lord, we ask that you would bless uh, the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, uh, or the mere existence of your word. Uh, or would you cause it to sanctify fallen man uh, this day and from this day forward until uh, the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name uh, that we make these requests before you. Amen. 
So we begin to look sort of uh, a brief overview of what is going on uh, in the first verses leading up to verse 12 of chapter 1. Uh, we see with the very beginning of verse 1, we see what is common throughout uh, many of the books of the Old Testament. We begin to see the lineage of this prophet, uh, a minor prophet, if you will, uh, a very short book we have here, but he is uh, declaring his, his uh, line and from that which he comes. It is important because we believe that this is how the man would carry such weight as to be able to speak these things uh, before the people coming from a line, if you would, of kings that is uh, depicted there in verse 1. And then he begins to declare uh, with verse 2 here uh, what will be happening on the day in which these prophecies are fulfilled. What will happen with the Lord and what will happen with creation. And we begin to see uh, with verse 3 in this long list of things, everything that God himself is accredited with uh, through the person of Jesus Christ, even referenced in Hebrews chapter 1, all that he is accredited with creating, these things will be removed. These things will cease. These things will never again exist in the form and fashion in which they were first created. Uh, this sets the tone for what God will declare in verse 12. For we are called like with last week's text, to look and see how even man will wither and fade, even how man is limited by his span of life, for he is not infinite like God, he is not eternal except it be through Jesus Christ, he cannot uh, overcome God's plan, and this is it defined here in Zephaniah, though it has its literal and temporal meanings and fulfillment uh, with this tribe here, as they are discussed, this uh, line of Judah, as we see, and Jerusalem. And we see the, the fulfillment of that by those who will come in and who will conquer and who will take things that were not their, their own. Yet, Lord has declared that this shall be done to these people uh, for their sinfulness. We begin to realize as well that there carries with this text a great spiritual understanding and it applies not only to one group of people, but it applies to the entirety of mankind as he is uh, limited by his knowledge, as he is limited by his life, as he is extremely limited by his righteousness, for he has none. We see that God in verse 4 is declaring that he will stretch out his hands against the inhabitants, against uh, many people as it is presented and. Indeed, the masses of these people. He declares that they will be cut off, for they have worshipped idols and false gods. And as we begin to see that depicted in verses 4 and 5 and 6, it says that they have turned their back on the Lord. And this is a point in which we shall begin to look at verse 12, really, this morning. Those who have turned their back on the Lord, or those who have never turned to the Lord, we began to see that there are but three possibilities with man's sinfulness this morning. In the realm of uh, all of the Word of God, 66 books, many chapters and verses, there are but three possibilities with sin. Man may either acknowledge sin and present it before God for cleansing through Jesus Christ, or man may ignore sin, or man may hide sin. This morning as we look at the first chapter of Zephaniah, we see what happens with hidden sin. And even with hidden sin, what happens as well with blatant sin. Why should we as a church be reminded of those things? Because sin affects both the unbelieving and the believing world. And what we do with our sin and how we approach our sinfulness and the reality of it declares altogether where we will stand with God. This morning, verse 12, as we read it, declares what we have in the Savior Jesus Christ if we be trusting in Him 
with our sin or what we will do and what we will see should we not truly trust in Jesus Christ? Shall we not fully commit ourselves to God and his decree? And verse 12 begins reading this way. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good or evil. It will come about at that time. In this first opening portion of verse 12, we have a great insight into who God is. It says, it will, it shall, it cannot be avoided uh, nor escaped this time that is at hand. Believe that when our Protestant reformers, men like Jonathan Edwards would preach powerful sermons, it was because they understood that we may not escape God's wrath. That we may only find refuge in Jesus Christ. And if we are to escape the wrath of God, it is by running into his arms. It is by trusting in his Son. Again, consider the text. It will come about. At that time, a specific time, and what we begin to see is verse 12 is a picture-perfect model of God's omniscience. very thing that we read this morning, what's interesting is when a sermon is prepared for this congregation, maker of the bulletin has no idea what is in it. I believe that she should feed at the same time at the rest of the flock and According to God's foreknowledge, this morning we found ourselves uh, reading from our catechism that we started many, many years ago, and we happen to be in this particular place this morning. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His own will, in which He has decided and ordained ahead of time whatever come to pass so that He alone is glorified. How does he accomplish his decrees? He does so in the work of creation and in providence. This morning we are urged to consider the omniscience of God, the work of his providence as we read verse 12 and understanding that God has declared a time will come, a specific time, not only a specific time in which Jerusalem will be searched, but a specific time in which the, this earth will be rolled away like a garment, not fit for use anymore, serving its purpose to the fullest extent and yet uh, remaining no longer because he will form a new heaven and a new earth. And we ask the question, who will be there? Who will be present? And there may be but one answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Under that subheading or that heading of Jesus Christ is the subheading so shall be his bride it stands that we understand from that that those who are not belonging to Christ shall not be there shall not be present in which we look to God's uh, prophecy as he has given it in the Old Testament this morning and see that he has declared a temporal truth for Jerusalem but he has uh, determine a spiritual outcome for all of mankind. He says, there will be a time, a specific time, uh, God's time, the very time that Jesus himself would work upon in which he would say many times in the Gospels, now is not my time. The hour has not yet come. Working according to the will of God, according to the omniscience of God, according to the purpose of God, uh, the preeminent plan of God, providence, his decree before the foundation of the earth, these things would happen. These things shall happen. And uh, just as sure as Christ came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him this morning, we must submit to this will of God and see that the time is coming. Today may be the time for one such sinner. 
or for the many, and we do not know. It says, I will search. Often, the text of Scripture, when talking about searching, makes me think of the rhetorical question that God would pose to Adam when he was hiding in the garden. Where are you, Adam? Again, God, in this particular text, declares that he will search Jerusalem. Let me bring forth to light this morning that God will not find anything new when he searches. When God declares that he is searching He is simply restating a fact that many overlook and that many miss is that God already knows. In fact, when we have a treasure map, we say that we're searching for treasure when in fact the map tells exactly where it is. I believe that is, uh, though in some great degree uh, lesser than I could ever illustrate, It is the truth of what God is declaring here. He is searching for what he already knows exists. He is not looking for some hidden sin as if he is not aware of it. He is not searching for the righteous as if he does not know them as well. For we know that Jesus has declared and the text of Scripture declares that he knows the hearts of men. He is not ignorant. He is not lacking in knowledge or power or wisdom or truth. He said even as it was asked of him uh, how one may inherit the kingdom of God, how one may live eternally. He was called good and he said there is none good but God. This morning I'm reminded not only of these attributes of God, this omniscience of God, I'm reminded it's something uh, that John and I were able to talk about this week. Reminded that if we are missing out on the sovereignty of God, that we are overlooking the goodness of God. The sovereignty of God is intertwined in every letter of the text this morning. It will come, declares a sovereign God. At that appointed time, as he declares, a sovereign God, I will, because I will never cease to be cut off from my creation, I will never cease to have access to this creation. Again, a sovereign God declaring what he must do according to his purpose. At the time he was talking about this area, this Jerusalem, and their sinfulness, and As we know, it will come to be fulfilled. These Chaldeans will come and they will search and they will take what they have not earned. It will not be a mystery to God or a surprise for he has made it such. This morning, as we take uh, those temporal truths and apply them in a spiritual spiritual sense and an eternal sense, we see this morning that God is searching his people. God is searching even those who are not. Most importantly, what we see is that God will find sin. Nothing shall be hidden. Nothing shall overlook or avoid the punishment of God, for he has declared that the wages of sin is death, that which no man may escape unless he be without it. We know that there is only one, and that is Jesus Christ, who is without such sin, yet it says... I will search. Not only is God searching sinful people who it seems and who are presented as turning away and following false gods and indulged in idolatry, but I submit to you that God is even this morning searching those who belong to him. What he will find is sin. Praise the Lord this morning that when he searches, sin may not be all that he finds. That for the church, he will find an advocate. He will find his only begotten son, the one who is well-pleasing before him, the one who has satisfied the payment of the sin that he will find. 
text of Scripture is not only declaring the sovereignty of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ in a spiritual, eternal sense, but it is also causing us to uh, remember that we are called to live a repentant lifestyle before God, to keep short accounts of our sin with God, to be true and honest with God, not attempting to hide what cannot be hidden, not attempting to justify what cannot be justified, only pleading to God on behalf of his mercy and his grace and the sacrifice of his son that we may be cleansed and covered, says, I will search and I will search Jerusalem with lamps. When I consider searching with lamps, uh, it is of common understanding and uh, typical understanding that this is talking about not just those things which the natural light will bring to our appearance, our, our presence. Not those things that the sunlight may come in and everyone may see, but with the lamp is detailing, looking in every crevice and corner with the light to see those things that had escaped our normal vision. That is what God does with sin. He's not just seeing those things that you do outwardly. God is not only aware of those things that happen in public, for many will deceive the masses by how they behave in public, for many will come to church on Sunday. Many will cook good meals. Many will say nice things and uh, indulge their friends and their pew mates in verbal pleasures, even condolences in times of grief, making us feel very comfortable and satisfied but what the lamp will do is it will shed light on those things that are hidden in dark corners will shed light on those things that have not been seen for a while not only is this what the lamp will do not only is this what happened uh, temporally and literally with those invaders if you will of these homes but this is what will happen with the truth of Christ. This is what happens with the word of God. It seeks out the deepest and most hidden of sin in order that it may be revealed so that Christ may be glorified and that Jesus would be exalted and that man would be put in his proper place. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It illumines things. For when it speaks here about a lamp, though it is uh, being applied to these uh, Chaldean people who are not necessarily uh, in any respect seen as a people of God, they are seen as an instrument of God by which all things may come to light. Isn't that interesting? That's what we know of the Word of God, that good things and bad things alike will be used according to God's purpose, that those who belong to Him may see that it is good, and that it be, as we sing, well with our souls. Again, this morning, just happened, this bulletin maker, she's really good. She picked the song out, and we sang it. Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where from cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. And I thought, how wonderful that is to be able to sing that. Then I thought about this lamp and these people who would be called in to find these things that are hidden. And I thought, what would it mean for one to sit in a pew this morning and sing, down at the cross where my Savior died, downward from cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied, and he not have Christ. What would it mean if an unbeliever would sit here and sing a hymn like that? He would be lying. He would be condemning himself. He would be hiding the truth and presenting a lie. Thought, how gracious, how omniscient, how sovereign is God that by simply the truth of Jesus Christ sung in a hymn, may the church glorify his name and sing praises and worship as they ought 
and the unbeliever who works their way in bring to himself condemnation. That's how powerful God is, that even in the quote-unquote church, that sin may find you out. God doesn't have to trick you into sin, but sin may be ousted by the truth of the gospel. For if one would sing these praises unto the Lord and call him Savior, yet uh, submit not and bow not the knee, he will find himself in this same faith that is declared in verse 12. It says, I will search them with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. Stagnant who have settled down, not moving, either forward or backwards, just sitting still, something a Christian is never called to. The punishment of God is declared, and it is not for some, but it is for all who sin and have not Christ. Even in a temporal sense, we may find punishment this side of heaven for sin. Everyone here, I'm sure, can think of a time in which they have sinned, uh, either privately or publicly, and the Lord has chastened according to his mercy, or has punished according to the wages that he has set forth. Again, speaking of a sovereign God, an omniscient God who has been truthful and who knows every secret, the Lord is declaring that he has instruments, vessels, of dishonor even that serve a purpose for those who are vessels of honor uh, we begin to look again it says stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts the lord will not do good or evil what a proclamation against the god of the bible in fact uh, to say that god himself is stagnant or that god has uh, just set aside and watched things occur without either decreeing or making his will be done on earth and heaven as it is in heaven, or to say that God has left things up to chance, doing neither good or evil, is to declare that he is not concerned with man. We know that that is not the case because this God, in fact, has done the greatest good. This God has come in the form of man, in the flesh of man, the likeness of man, yet sinned not and has given himself on the cross that sinners may be pardoned. What greater good could there be? If this is the only thing good that God has ever done, is it not still working? Is it not the blood of Christ that is still saving man? Is it not the gospel of Jesus, the declaration of what Christ has done some 2,000 years ago? Is it not still effective unto salvation? Are men not still being spared from hell? To think that the Lord does not good or evil is to declare that he is resting that he is sleeping that he gives no care towards man that he gives no punishment towards sin it is actually a declaration what these men have said and what some of you may say if you deny uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign and his sovereignty, and if you deny the goodness of God and the omniscience of God, you are denying that God is in control. You are denying that he is uh, doing what is just. We have a huge issue as Christians if we think that way. If we would look at our Lord and say that he is not so concerned with man that he is drawing them even against their will into the goodness of Christ to see the light of Christ that he is not grabbing and plucking those who are headed for destruction and hellfire and bringing them into the flock of Christ that he is not shepherding them what a lie has been presented what a lie has been lived and told even in verse 12 it's depicted these in verse 12 uh, in other passages of scripture which i would like uh, to look at a few this morning one uh, and considering what has been uh, the final words in verse 12 the lord will do no good or evil is that the salvation 
of Christ is dismissed. The very attribute of God and His omniscience has been dismissed. The sovereignty of God has been dismissed. When in fact, we have verses such as these that declare otherwise. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. His knowledge is uh, without limitations or bounds. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Psalm 139, verse 4, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God is not searching for those things that are hidden. God is simply with the utmost grace and mercy revealing to us that whatever he seeks will be found. Whatever sin we have, shall be revealed Matthew chapter 10 says every hair on your head is numbered there is none but God who may number them Psalm 147 says he counts the stars and he gives them names all of them Hebrews chapter 4 there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do this is altogether different than the view that these people had of God and the view that they maintained of God for some for some season had maybe uh, seemingly repented but had returned from their repentance to their sin. David was all familiar. He said, you have searched me and known me in Psalm chapter 139. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You've scrutinized my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. David didn't say with my good ways, with all of my ways. Would God, Psalm chapter 44, verse 21, would God not find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Presented to us is the fact that whatever the Lord has sought after, he has found. He has found sinful men in need of a Savior, and He has indeed sent His only begotten Son that they may be ransomed upon Calvary's cross. Jeremiah, famous prophet, chapter 48, verse 11, said, Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and he hath settled on his lees. And hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remain in him, and his scent is not changed. Uh, likening, li being likened here in chapter 48 of 11 uh, is man and Moab, uh, most appropriately uh, in its literal context. It's being likened to wine in a wineskin. And what would happen is uh, they would take the new wine and they would place it into the skin and let the things, the particles and such, settle out of it. And ideally what would happen is that uh, which was settled on the bottom would be separated and the top would be poured off into a new wine skin or a different wine skin, I would say. And then it would settle again. And what we have is basically a filtering process by which the wine is refined by which it becomes better and more valuable. And then we remember what happened at the wedding feast. Uh, they ran out of wine. They came to Jesus. Uh, he told them what to do. He turned water into wine. And their response was, you have saved the best for last. I submit to you, not only did Jesus save the best for last as it was presented, but he saved the worst first. He saved the worst only, worst of sinners, the chief, as Paul would say. And as we see that depicted in uh, chapter 48 and verse 11, we see that the same thing is being said here of these stagnant men in spirit. They're like this wine in which uh, this crust and this debris and this sediment has settled, and we have just left it there, stagnant. 
rather than pouring it off and refining it, what he's saying is that some have heard the good news of Jesus Christ and some have heard of the goodness uh, even before Christ had come in the flesh and the goodness of God, the decree of God, and they have simply just settled down where they were, happy in this skin, happy with this value that is placed upon this thing that God used uh, to promote and to uh, secure wealth. Wine, we see it many times in the Bible. They were just happy with knowing that they were a wine. They were a people of God. They were something that many liked, but the truth was they were not being refined. They were just the first portion of the wine, not even the best of wine. The best wine would be saved for last because it is a picture of what Christ is doing through sanctification to pour off what is good and to hold back what is bad. This is what God is doing with his word and with his uh, decree and with his commands that at every time that the Christian is obedient unto God's word, he is keeping back that old nasty crust and only presenting uh, into the new skin what is holy and what is pure. He's looking for these secrets. He's punishing sin from one vessel, one skin to the next. The sanctification of Christ is made present in the life of the believer and it is seen it is visible what god is doing and here when we look into these old testament passages uh, we are presented with the truth of christ and what it means to be obedient to god that all idolatry shall be torn away all of these temporal things and even this earth and this creation shall be ripped apart and live no more, much like what we see with the flood and Noah. He's taking everything out in this chapter. Nothing will remain, yet Jesus Christ shall live. That's why Paul says, It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Reality for the church this morning is to be confronted with the truth of sin and to be honest with God and to see God's sovereignty and God's rule and his reign and his authority and submit to those things and trust in his son Jesus Christ for there is no other way Jeremiah chapter 16 behold I will send for many fishers saith the Lord and they shall fish them and after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. We have a common saying for something like this, no stone left unturned. We think about stones, we think about the hearts of men. None not one heart left unturned. For he will peer and he will see. The question is, will he see our sin and our love for sin, our hiding of sin, our ignoring of sin, or will he simply see the truth of Christ? Will he see the blood of this beloved son? God in Jeremiah is saying that he will send many These Chaldees were hunters. Some were fishermen. Not necessarily or even implied men of God. But they are victors in a temporal sense. How much more so if these sinful men are victors? How much more so is Christ? To be a victor not only over his adversaries but over sin and death itself. To live beyond the grave, to ascend beyond the earth and the expanses that we know and into heaven, the presence of God. Nothing is to escape God's presence and God's knowledge. Restoration, in fact, must come at the revealing of that which is sinful. Truth of Christ is only revealed at the revelation of sin. 
the revelation of his goodness. That is that threefold model of the gospel by which we see Christ and his perfection. And then we look to ourselves and see our sinfulness and the great chasm that we cannot span with either deeds or wealth or anything else or riches or silver as it is presented this morning. And then we look to Christ and say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Here is a spiritual living that is presented in the text and it comes only by the work of god and it must be at the renouncing of sin it must be at the diminishing presence of sin in our lives for uh, just as true as it was unto jerusalem it is true today that he is coming he is coming what will he find what will he find in the church? What will he find in your home? What will he find in your heart? It's a sobering question. It's an indictment against every fallen man. God will search. He will punish those stagnant. We need to be planted beside Rivers of flowing, living water. Water that is moving. Water that is washing away our sin. Washing by the word. That means that as often as we may be cleansed, some may take a bath once a week, some may take a bath every day, we need the constant moving and the washing of the water of the word. It needs to be uh, overcoming us at every moment, not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, not just in our Bible study times that we have in private. The Word must be flowing over and through the Christian, the church of God, the true church. If not, we are just as those who say the Lord does not good or evil. We in our minds and in our hearts are rendering God powerless when in fact that is as far from the truth as, uh, as evil can be. We cannot accept this uh, God who is not doing good. We cannot accept this God who is not punishing sin. For ours has declared from the beginning that is what he will do. He's also declared that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He has declared that there is no, uh, there's no security in earthly things. No wealth, no horses, no instruments of battle and warfare, swords and guns or any of the such. No security in systems or dogs. No security in the social system. There is security in but one, and that is Jesus Christ. There is one name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. For God is employing everything, both good and evil, that we may see his goodness, that we may fall into his everlasting arms, that we may trust in his infinite mercy and his grace. For the Lord of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ has been presented in the word of God that it is preserved that each and every man until the second coming shall see the multitude of his blessings, the multitude of his grace, the extension of his mercy, saving to the uttermost. This is not some Baal. This is not some false god that we're speaking of this is a god who may use the best of things and the worst of things that men may see christ the question that we must ask ourselves today are we focused on seeing and ushering and allowing to whatever degree that the lord would will even the worst of our situations, to glorify God. To cause others to see the gospel, to hear the gospel, to effectually uh, 
be used with the gospel? Are we ourselves imploring the gospel of Christ that, as Paul would say, some might be saved? Are we concerned as Christ is concerned for sinners? Ultimately, when we look at Zephaniah chapter 12, we see punishment uh, coming in the most literal. But the reality is this morning, if we uh, have known and do know truly Jesus Christ, this is uh, at very worst a bittersweet moment because we know that Christ has saved. That he is a propitiation. That when God is searching, when he finds his son, there shall be nothing said, no condemnation. It says, therefore, now no condemnation. But he says, this is my son. This is his bride. You are his sheep that I have given, that I have sustained, that I have kept for this day. Be a lot of people at the end when verse 2 begins, I will completely remove all things. A lot of people will be disappointed. A lot of people who will face torment and hell. There'll be one people, the church of Christ, who will be completely fulfilled, who will experience uh, the grace and the fullness of the glory of God into eternity, never to be upset or lacking of anything or wanting for anything because they will have their Savior. This morning I pray that this is the attitude and the longing of this church. That we will say, not only does our God do good, but our God overcomes evil. And that our God is so powerful that what evil, whatever evil and principalities and powers and darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places does exist, that they are but uh, the most minor of combatants against our powerful God. That they're not even, uh, if you will, a warm-up game. God is in league of his own, truly. None form before him, nor shall there be after him. One God, one heaven, one Savior. Thought about it many times this week. The names and the titles ascribed to Christ, and they are, they're almost, even, even though they're contained in these books, they're almost infinite just if you sit down and start to try to think of them. You would think, man, you just run out of paper. True vine, son of God, son of man, way, truth, life. Good shepherd, Lord of lords, king of kings, that I am. And you begin to see that whatever the situation calls for, whatever goodness is needed, Christ is the answer. This morning I pray that you will see that Christ is the answer and that he is not only the one who has given the sun its light, but he is that who has given the lamp its light. He is truly a spiritual light in darkest of places. It says the darkness cannot comprehend, it cannot overcome, it cannot hide anything from God. The best thing is what your parents used to say is, Truth will set you free, reminding us of what the Bible has foretold. The truth has set us free, the truth that is Christ, the truth that is his shed blood on Calvary's cross, the truth that he is the remission of sins, he is the Lamb of God, uh, slain before the foundation of the earth, no bone, no bone broken, no spot, no blemish, no sin in him. This is our Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we uh, consider the word this morning, Lord, let us be thankful, Lord, but let us as well be vigilant to find ourselves not, uh, not a representative of this group in Jerusalem. Let us be counted as David's and as Paul's, those who have 
seen their sin, Lord, who have acknowledged their sin, but who have also acknowledged your surpassing goodness, your surpassing grace, as we sing in the hymn, Lord, grace that is greater than all our sin. If that is the truth, Lord, we must be honest with you. If your grace can cover those sins that we commit in public, Lord, it can also cover those sins that are hidden in private. We should not be ashamed of your grace and its power, nor should we uh, deny the omniscience and the sovereignty of you, O God. Lord, let us acknowledge it, be obedient unto your word. Let us serve as proper slaves to righteousness. Lord, cause us to love one another, to ultimately love our Savior. Lord, kindle in us afresh a fire, a desire for the gospel of Christ and for the person of Jesus, that we may know him, God, and that we may make him known. Lord, that we would be today instruments, vessels of honor used according to your purpose, that some may be saved. And Lord, that in all of those things that we engage in, that you alone would receive the glory forever and ever. Amen.